0: And so people have sent me duplicates of it. And I guess, and people ask me what it's worth because that's a big deal now uh, in baseball card collecting. Sure. And I guess like a mint condition mantle 1952, which is one of the holy grail cards, recently sold for more than $5 million. Oh my gosh. But I think that even in mint condition, and that there's a difference between mint and really good condition. Right. I've got some cards, mantle cards, that are in pretty good condition. It might be worth a few hundred or maybe in the low thousands, but nobody in our era collected baseball cards for any reason other than the fun of baseball right. and the sentimentality. It was never an investment.
1: Hi there and welcome in to a brand new week of Celebrity Salute, dedicated to the men and women who serve our country in active duty, our veterans and their families. We're here for you. God bless you. We love you. On each episode, we look for people and stories with some connection to these heroes. I'm Randy Miller. Bob Costas is a legendary sportscaster who's known for his long tenure with NBC Sports. He's received 28 Emmy Awards for his work and was primetime host of 12 Olympic Games from 1988 to 2016. He works now for Warner Brothers Discovery Sports, where he does play-by-play, studio work for the MLB on TBS, and he has a new interview show on HBO. He's a huge supporter of our military and our veterans, covered the U.S. Open golf tournament for 11 years, also hosted a talk show later with Bob Costas on NBC from 1988 until 1994, and played himself in the very underrated Chris Rock movie Pootie Tang. He's covered just about every major sport with a style that is absolutely brilliant. He's back in the interview chair now with his long-form talk show on HBO back on the record with Bob Costas. We are happy to have Bob join us right here on Celebrity Salute. Bob, how are you?
0: I'm good, and of all those credits you listed, Randy, obviously the one of which I am most proud would be Pootie
1: Tang. Well, yeah, undeniably. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There were so many people in that movie. Oh, yeah. I was looking at the cast of that movie, and it's like a who's who of comedians and you.
0: Well, Chris Rock was the executive producer and also appears in it. Wanda Sykes, who's always been great, sure. is part of it. And long before he broke out on Curb Your Enthusiasm and other places, commercials and whatnot, J.B. Smoove is in right. it as
1: well. <laughs> right, right. Oh, no, it's a classic. Bob, I've got so many questions. Where do we start? I just had a, a buddy of yours on the show, uh, Joe Poznanski
0: Oh, sure. Joe's yeah.
1: great. Yeah, we're based in Kansas City. And, of course, Joe was the longtime uh, sports columnist at the Star and has a great new baseball book out. And and I told Joe, all he did was just start a fight. I mean, those baseball books, they, they just always start a fight, don't they?
0: Yeah, pretty much. And he attempted to list the 100 greatest players of all time. And he certainly didn't uh, scrimp on his research or the time he put into it, right? I mean, this book is enormous. <laughs> if Tolstoy was alive, he'd be embarrassed that he didn't put more effort into war and peace. <laughs> right. But the beauty of this is you can read it in little bits and pieces. I don't think anyone's going to read it from page one all the way through page. 972 or whatever it is. Yeah. You, if, you, if you just want to read the part about Carl Yastrzemski, then that's what you do. If you just want to read the part about Cool Papa Bell, then that's what you do. And right. then he also throws a curveball in there because while most of it is 100 counting down to one, some of the time he assigns a slot on the list to correspond with either the guy's uniform number or some achievement that he's associated with. Right. So at first I'm thinking... How can Joe DiMaggio be as low as 56? Well, he's 56 because of the 56 straight games. So we allow our friend Joe his little quirks.
1: (laughs) Of which he has many. Oh, yes. (laughs) So speaking of baseball now, I think it's pretty well known at this point that you have always carried a Mickey Mantle card, Mm. right?
0: Yeah, Uh, a 1958 Mickey Mantle, which represents the first time I remember getting Mickey Mantle or any other player, for that matter, out of a pack of Topps bubblegum cards. I was six years old. Oh, wow. In that era, uh, a pack of bubblegum cards cost a nickel. Right. The entire box, there were 20 of them in a box, which would be on display by the cash register at the candy store or wherever you got them around New York City. So literally for a buck... You could get a 100 cards, because there were five cards in each pack, along with that chalky, rectangular piece of gum, which, if you dropped it on the sidewalk, would shatter into 100 pieces like, like a pane of glass. It's a wonder that any of us still had our molars after digging into one of those. So anyway, I remembered this Mickey Mantle card. uh It's his all-star card from that year, uh, kind of a red background and gold stars going around, and they issued them for each player who had made the all-star team the year before. And like a, a zillion other kids, I collected them until I was maybe 12, 13 years old, and then they sat in a shoebox, and I stopped collecting them, even though I remained an avid baseball fan. And eventually your mom does what almost every mom did. She throws them away when you go to college. And luckily, that one Mantle card survived. And so I tucked it away, kind of just as a a wink-wink kind of good luck charm thing, connection to my childhood. Never made a big deal out of it. And then Tony Kubek, who had played with Mantle in the 50s and 60s with the Yankees and was my partner in the 80s on the NBC Baseball Game of the Week— He saw it at one point, mentioned it on the game. The next thing you know, Sports Illustrated writes a short story about it because they thought it was funny in some respect, and now... I'm actually obliged to have it with me almost every time I go out in public <laughs> because while it doesn't happen, I'm not saying it happens every day, it does happen from time to time that a stranger, after striking up some kind of conversation, will say, do you really have that mantle card? <laughs> and I don't want to disappoint the guy, so right. I have to produce it, right. which, which I do. Now, some people may wonder how, how well has this card survived since 1958. What's happened in the interim is when people find out about this um, at Christmas time. Or on my birthday, you know, every newspaper seems to have those little boxes of people's birthdays and whatnot. And that's why I find out that I have the same birthday as Reese Witherspoon and (laughs) William Shatner, for whatever that's worth. (laughs) Um, And so people have sent me duplicates of it. (laughs) <laughs> and I guess, and people ask me what it's worth, because that's a big deal now uh, in baseball card collecting. Sure. And I guess like a mint condition Mantle 1952, which is one of the Holy Grail cards, recently sold for more than $5 million. Oh, my gosh. But I think that even in mint condition, and that there's a difference between mint and really good condition. Right. I've got some cards, Mantle cards, that are in pretty good condition. It might be worth a few hundred or maybe in the low thousands. But nobody in our era... Collected baseball cards for any reason other than the fun of baseball right. and the sentimentality. It was never an investment, you know. And the ones that you had triples of or lesser players, those are the ones you put on the spoke of your bikes to you know, when you pedaled around the neighborhood. and made that cool clipping <laughs> right. sound. Right. So, so it's yeah. a whole different, a whole different deal. So when, <laughs> when, when people ask about the mantle card, to me, it was all just a little joke. Or a little kind of connection to my childhood. That's all it was. But now it's it's a different. Now time. it's your job. People always ask me about it as witness the fact that you just did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, not exactly the same, but I also have a similar habit. I carry a 1989 Bob Costas NBC announcer card. Oh, I know that card. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. I, I mean, uh, that's it's my good luck card. And as far as what it's worth, I was recently offered two Kevin Harlans and a Marv Albert. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it's up there.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and a, and a, a, a Syracuse undergrad to be named later. Right.
1: <laughs> exactly. Hey, Bob, you just donated an item for the Homes for the Troops charity auction and our audience is mainly comprised of uh, active-duty military veterans Mm -hmm. and their families. Uh, Have you done a lot with, uh, have you done anything with the USO, or or is this a regular practice of yours?
0: I I think it's kind of sporadic. I wish I could say I'd done something more consistently, Uh, but I've visited Walter Reed uh, on three or four occasions. Uh, I've been involved in some fundraisers over the years or uh, offered up, as you said, auction items. Um, you, You do what you can. When you're in a Uh, A visible position, and especially I think involving sports because sports cuts across so many demographic lines. And a lot of times, if you have an auction item, the person who buys it is thinking, This is something I I can share with my kids or my grandkids, as opposed to a tangible item if you say, Well, we're going to go to the ball game uh, and we're going to have this experience and we're going to meet so and so. So it, it has a kind of generational appeal. Um, so when I'm asked if I'm able to I try to help out and I don't think I'm much different than a lot of other people who are in a position to pay it forward we try to
1: what did you donate?
0: you know I'm not even sure this time it's probably it's probably a ball game experience yeah but it could have been um, because we you know we do this on multiple occasions it could have been uh, a book that I signed it could have been uh, baseballs or 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 signed bats it could have been something that I got a, a famous player to, to do to make a, a voicemail recording or to do a Zoom visit with a person mm-hmm. and their family. I mean, there's so many different ways you can come about it now. But I, I think at the top of that list, at least in terms of what I'm able to provide, are the actual live ball game appearances,
2: oh, which cool.
0: COVID, COVID cut into. Right. Uh, but in the past, we used to arrange for people to come to the World Series and, and hang around or the NBA Finals or whatever it might have been.
1: That is so cool. And, and just to kind of underscore what you're talking about, Bob, sports cutting across all these different backgrounds, we're going to have Brenda Warner on the show. Oh, yeah. And a new movie coming out with uh, about Kurt Warner. Yes. And I think it's Dennis Quaid plays uh, Dick Vermeil in the movie. Uh, but Brenda served in the military for five years when they were struggling. Have you ever heard a more rags to riches story as that? You
0: know, I'd have to think about it, but I think it could only be a tie. I don't think anything Mm -hmm. could exceed it. I mean, in addition to her being in the military, Kurt was literally stocking shells at a grocery store or some of the equivalent of a Walmart somewhere in Iowa. Then he plays in the Arena League. He's barely making the team with uh, the Cardinals when they were still, I'm not sorry, the Rams in St. Louis. Uh, And then Trent Green gets hurt. And the thought is, as the season's about to begin, the thought is, oh, my gosh, the season's lost. Trent Green is hurt. This guy we've never heard of. He's never been tested under fire. This is our guy. And he becomes a Hall of Famer, yeah. goes to three Super Bowls, wins the first one, and the two that uh, first the Rams and then the Arizona Cardinals lost, they lost right at the end. You know, So he could have had three Super Bowl championships. And he was the quarterback of one of the most memorable teams in NFL history, Uh, that greatest show on turf, St. Louis Rams team. Yeah, right. Plus, he's just a wonderful guy. You want to talk about a guy who kind of walks the walk. Right. Um, He did so many things, and I'm sure he continues to do it, but uh, in St. Louis, since I was living there at the time, I was more aware of it. He did a lot of things. Some were publicized because they were of a fundraising nature or public appearances. Right. But the real measure was you'd hear these stories just told by parents of kids who were in the hospital and that he went to visit with no fanfare, right. no publicity. He just he, He's just a genuinely good man.
1: Yeah, which is totally opposite for Trent Green, who hates people.
0: Oh, yeah, Trent's a terrible <laughs>
1: dude. <laughs> so, you know, it's so funny, Bob. We're based here in Kansas City, like I mentioned, and you talk about the trading card phenomenon, and I'm sure you've heard about the couple who started collecting Patrick Mahomes cards uh, when he was in maybe even high school, and now that's worth millions and millions of dollars. Well, I had that thought for my two daughters. I thought, okay, I'm going to identify the next superstar, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to get that rookie card, and that's going to be their inheritance. So I settled on Trevor Lawrence. Right. (laughs) <laughs> I I uh, I can't get anybody to even take that card now.
0: Well, you know, he uh, the luck of the draw wasn't <laughs> wasn't so kind to him, <laughs> right?
1: Uh, hey, what do you enjoy more? I, you're you're a great writer. Uh, you're a great interviewer. What do you like doing best?
0: Well, I I do like long form programming. That's what Later was yes. in the 80s and 90s. And well, great you know,
1: great show, <laughs> by the way. Thank uh, you. I love that show
0: thank you. And you know, it's had a second life now with YouTube. There are hundreds yes. of laters knocking around on YouTube, which I found out when I people started to text me and say, hey, I just saw you with Dennis Hopper. And I'm thinking, gee, hasn't Dennis Hopper been gone for a while? <laughs> what, was a, a seance of some kind? And then I had to, oh yeah, I interviewed him on later in 1990 or what? something. I just so watched it,
1: your Paul McCartney. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. man, was that a great interview.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And, and what's gratifying is that most of them seem to hold up pretty well, yes. three, whatever years later, and, and there's an appreciative audience for it still, so, so that's something that I can take some pride in. And What I'm doing now at HBO, even though it's sports-centric, um, it still has some of the same elements uh, in addition to others, so there are long-form interviews, there are panel discussions, Some of it's biographical, depending upon the guest. Some of it's more issue-oriented, depending upon who it is. And then it ends with me doing an extended commentary of some kind, and HBO gives you the room. So I've done four of them so far, and I think the essays have ranged in length from four minutes to six minutes, and that's a lot of time. On TV.
1: Yeah, it really is. And and that's why I appreciate those kind of interviews so much, because you get to the meat of the person, which is really, really nice. And in the case of Paul McCartney, you're just so unflappable. I mean, you're talking to Paul McCartney and there's barely a reaction from you. (laughs) Has there ever been a case where you were flapped?
0: You know, before I answer that, with regard to McCartney, if I appeared calm and cool that belied how fast my heart was beating. <laughs> you know, everything, and uh, part of what put me at ease was the fact that he's such a nice guy. Mm. You know, he's Paul McCartney, but right. he doesn't <laughs> carry himself with an air of, you know, I'm one of the most famous people who's ever lived. <laughs> right. you know, he's a down-to-earth guy, very, very nice. He committed to do it, and therefore he was engaged. It was a different thing in 1991. Now Paul McCartney and others... Someone like Bruce Springsteen, you see him all the time being interviewed. Paul had not been interviewed on American television in any context in a decade at the time that he sat down to do this. And like a lot of people in show business, musicians, whatever, they stay up late, they keep odd hours, and later aired at 1.30 Eastern Time, 12.30 Central. But a lot of ballplayers and entertainers were regular viewers, and he had seen other musicians on it. And he wanted to do it because he knew that it wasn't going to be a soundbite thing and that we'd come well-prepared. And, you know, I'm sure this is true of you, Randy. All of us, the stuff that really grabbed us when we were kids is more impactful. Oh, yeah. If, if you're, if you're a, um, a Kansas City Royal fan now, right? or even, let's say, a Kansas City Chief fan, if you're a Kansas City Chief fan of a certain age, meeting Len Dawson would have a different effect on you than meeting Patrick Mahomes.
1: Right, right. That is is absolutely true.
0: Sure it is. And it's it's no disrespect to Patrick Mahomes. Um, So I was 11 years old when Paul McCartney and the Beatles premiered on the Ed Sullivan show. And I can still remember sitting on the carpet in the living room with my parents and my sister watching them on a black and white TV. And this was when The entire nation could be focused on a single thing. Everybody watched the Ed Sullivan show that night. So what I'm thinking is, as I sit down with Paul McCartney, a bunch of people I went to grade school and high school with who I haven't seen in years are going to see this, and they're going to say, there's Bobby Costas talking to Paul McCartney. (laughs) And I, I better not mess this up, but Paul put me at ease almost right away, so... You know, it's like sometimes athletes say I was really nervous at the Super Bowl or the World Series, but after the first ball was hit to me or after the first tackle, then it just became another game. Right? I wouldn't say it was just another interview, but after the first few minutes, you're doing your job.
1: (laughs) It is so true of people of a certain era. It's like I asked Joe Poe about his baseball book. I said, can I guess who number one is? And he said, I said, was it the the great Buddy (laughs) Biancolana? And <laughs> he said, "No." He said, "Unfortunately, Buddy, uh, that's gonna he's, he's going to have a separate book for Buddy." So,
0: you know, actually, Buddy and I are connected, though I haven't seen or spoken to him in a very long time. Tony Kubek and I did the nineteen eighty five ALCS, and at that time, David Letterman, who's a baseball fan, sure. David had just adopted Buddy Biancolana. Right, right. At another time, he adopted Terry Forster, very good left-hander relief pitcher who was not exactly in Peloton shape. Let's put it that way. And David, David kept referring to, to Terry as a big fat tub of goo. But eventually, Terry came on the show in good nature. Right. And so now the next player he adopts is Buddy Biancolana. And it, at, at that time, Pete Rose was pursuing Ty Cobb. Uh, right. the all-time hit record. So David had a, a hit meter showing Rose how close he was to
2: God, and then
0: Buddy Biancolana who at that point had like 92 <laughs> career hits or some <laughs> such thing. So, so early on in the LCS, I pick up on this, and I'm talking about how he's David Letterman's favorite player, blah, blah, blah. And then he had a couple of really big hits yes. uh, against the Blue Jays. You know, and so it became kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing. And David was talking about it, and he was replaying the calls of Buddy Bianca on his hits. And so Buddy and I were in touch for a couple of years after that, but uh, we were in touch.
1: <laughs> Did he ever try to sell you magnets?
0: No, no, okay. he never did. Yeah, I had
1: well, That, that b- is what
0: was that his post career deal? Yeah, <laughs> I
1: went to Royals Dream Week uh, when I was thirty, and again when I was forty, and Buddy was there, and he was talking to me about the quality of life you could have with magnets. And he said, "Would you like to come up to the room? I've got I've, I've got magnets uh, on the bed, and my wife and I would like to just show you the magnets." And I said, "I I, I want to get away from you, Buddy. So <laughs> well, it, it was just, yikes. yeah." <laughs> So did you ever see the Charles Groden show? Oh yeah. You strike me as a guy who enjoyed that show. I loved that show.
0: I was on I was on the show. I was oh, a guest really? once on the show. Oh, yeah, wow. I I, I love Charles. He, oh. he, had, he 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 never broke character. You no. Know, he had whether he was the guest or whether he was the host, he had that same off-center persona <laughs> and he never veered from it.
1: <laughs> he was just, it was just always awkward. Yes. I mean, it could have been called Always Awkward with Charles Grodin because you just never knew where he was coming from. And uh, did you as a guest feel comfortable on that show?
0: I did because I knew what to expect. Right. So I came ready to roll with
1: it. (laughs) And you've been a part, uh, I mean, front row seat to so many fantastic moments. And in the book, I Was There, you talk about the opening ceremony at the 1980, I think the 88 Olympics, right? Are uh,
0: you talking about the Ali one? Yes. That's 96 in Atlanta.
1: 96 in Atlanta. Can you, yeah. Yeah, you kind of take us back to that moment?
0: Well, there's always talk about who's going to be the last torchbearer. Take the torch and, in effect, light the cauldron, which burns during the entire Olympic Games. Uh, and there was a lot of speculation. Who might it be? What athlete associated with Atlanta? Hank Aaron? Well, yeah, but baseball's not really, especially at that time, an Olympic sport. It's not, he's not associated with the Olympics. Evander Holyfield, heavyweight champion of the world right. from Atlanta. You know, who, who might it be? And Dick Eversoll, who ran NBC Sports, suggested to the Olympic organizers that it be Ali. And in the lead-up, this is mid-'90s, some of the response was pushback. It was like, well, he may be a hero in some parts of the country. But down here in the South, to many of us, he's still a draft dodger. Mm. And Dick said, no, you don't understand. Th- this has changed now. The view has changed. It was a different time, and you know he stood for what he believed. He paid the price. People will be receptive to this. So Dick convinced them. But then the next thing was, how do they stage it? Now, this was 20 years before Muhammad died. Um, but he was still, even at that point, it was the early stages of Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. But he was impaired to a noticeable extent. So about a dozen people even knew, Randy, that it was going to be Muhammad. And I was not among them. They rehearsed it one time at 3 o'clock in the morning with nobody in the stadium. Wow. So Dick Enberg and I are hosting the opening ceremony. And a day or two before, Dick Ebersol says, I'm not going to tell you who it is. You will recognize him or her the instant you see him or her. That's how he put it. But I want your reaction to be as spontaneous as the people in the stadium. So we're racking our brains thinking who it might be. And Muhammad Ali just never occurred to us, even though he does have uh, an Olympic background. He won a gold medal in 1960 in Rome. It just never crossed my mind. So now Janet Evans, a great Olympic swimmer, is the second to last torchbearer. And she's the one who has to climb the steep flight of stairs all the way up to the top. And so she's got it. And then the way they staged it, Muhammad stepped literally out of the shadows to accept the torch from Janet Evans on the platform. And when he stepped out, it took two or three seconds for it to really sink in to the crowd in the stadium. So there was silence, and then there were even some audible gasps. (laughs) And then it gave way to this long, sustained ovation and cheering. And in that moment, everything kind of came together. Yeah, there were people who, who did not like Muhammad Ali for a variety of reasons. He was a polarizing figure in the 60s and 70s. But over time, again, for a variety of reasons, people who always admired him, and I would count myself among them, saw that admiration grow. Others who had opposed him made their peace with him, and they could see his basic decency as a person. He was always very charismatic and and entertaining. At the same time, it was poignant, because here was a man who once was the most beautiful and most nimble of
2: athletes,
0: already beginning with the tremors and the shaking and very much compromised, and also one of the most voluble and entertaining. You know, the words just flowed from him, and even then... He was compromised in terms of what he could say. So in a sense, he was silenced. But his presence in that moment was as profound and moving as anything he had ever said in his interviews with Howard Cosell or on The Tonight Show, whatever it might have been. And I think to some extent, all of those things, the long arc of his life, uh, the fact that he he had gone from the most vital and, and vibrant of athletes to his present state in 1996 all those elements came together and everybody more or less understood all the same things at exactly the same time yeah and you rarely get that it gives me goosebumps even now yeah. as i talk about it and it was a moment of reconciliation and muhammad himself said he stuck around for the olympics and he visited with some of the athletes um, in the ensuing days and he told us at nbc that it felt like these are his words that he had been born again. Hmm. And so then at the end of the Olympics, so we had like two and a half weeks from the opening ceremony to the end, on either the last day or the second to last day, uh, NBC produced an hour long um, story of Muhammad's life, most of it as it connected to the Olympics, culminating in that moment. And the title of that segment was Twice Born.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for the long story. No, no. Asked. Listen, hey, it gives me goosebumps too, and I remember that that moment as as uh, so many people do. And I think the other part of that, uh, Bob, was the fact that before the Olympics, we hadn't seen Muhammad Ali in a while. Yeah. And, and I think that when he uh, stood up there with that torch, I think everybody at the same moment realized one thing that that was greatness. That was that was just the epitome of greatness.
0: You know, Randy, I had um, Ken Burns. And one of Muhammad's children, his daughter Rashida Ali, on the HBO show a couple of months ago, because Ken's documentary on PBS about Muhammad uh, was airing then, and it just premiered. And one of the points made in the conversation was this. You know, this cancel culture stuff, Mm -hmm. and this kind of Twitter or social media mob, which Many of us, no matter where we fall on the political spectrum, it isn't just people who are conservative who are, who are responding negatively toward this. You think of Bill Maher, who's a lifelong liberal, but who says, wait a minute, this woke stuff. Right. You're sweeping everything up and painting everything with a broad brush and not making any allowances for context or the complexity of history or of people's lives. Look at Muhammad Ali. He was a flawed man. But he was also a great man. Can't, yeah. can't we see that? Would you want to cancel Muhammad Ali because you disagreed with him about a political stance or because by his own admission, and the documentary doesn't flinch from it, he was not always faithful to his own professed beliefs in terms of his personal behavior? That's the complexity of history. In that respect, Muhammad Ali is, is like Thomas Jefferson. You can be a great man and a flawed man.
1: Yes, Yes. And,
0: and if we don't understand that, all of us go down the drain because none of us could stand that complete scrutiny. None of us.
1: That's funny, Bob. When you were when talking about that moment uh, at the Olympics, I was just thinking that could not happen today. That could not happen today, because if if that had been Muhammad Ali today, the aftermath of what you just talked about would be so swift and so stupid uh, right. I, I mean, yeah. It's, uh... You know, at the
0: same time that a lot of people who run um, various broadcasting enterprises, at the same time that they say, in effect, what you just said, Randy, it's so stupid, it's so mean-spirited, it doesn't represent a true cross-section, it's a subset of a subset, the Twitter world, whatever it is, they say that, but then they also react to it. They live in fear of it. Yep. You know, yep. there are a few people who can survive it. Like I talked to Charles Barkley about it. You're not cancelable. You're in a category of your own. Right. <laughs> you can say things that many of us think, but only you can say. But a lot of people, if they're expendable, it doesn't make any difference what the story of their life is, what the body of their work is. If they say something, right. if they step on some landmine as they try to negotiate the new realities,
1: that, that's it. That's it, or, or, or if they if they support another person, and you don't like that, you don't agree with that person. Now you don't like the person who supported them. I right. mean, it's it's yeah, it's uh, yeah. We live
0: in a, in a time when it's not possible to say, I respectfully disagree. Right. Yeah. We have been <laughs> yeah. taught um, across the spectrum. I think it comes more from one direction than another, but it does come from all directions to one extent right. or another. We've been taught that if this person disagrees with you or you think because very often people mischaracterize others views for their own purposes but if you think this person disagrees with you or has a different world view that person cannot be a good person (laughs) yeah that person is a not just mistaken in your view that person is a bad person yeah yeah that is a bad place for a society to be
1: well that's that's what i love about this program uh, that I do Because it's totally non-political And we tell people when they come on We don't care what you think about the administration About the government mm-hmm. We can all agree to support the troops And yes. and that's the one message I think that the active Duty military puts out there Because when you're getting shot at You're not going to ask the, your buddy beside you Where he's from, what he believes in Or, you know, what his origin is I mean, you you're just going to Expect him to protect you because he's another soldier.
0: That's right, Randy. And I'm sure you've discussed this very thing before, so I'm not making a new point. But one thing at least, thank goodness, that there seems to be an overwhelming national consensus on is that what happened in the aftermath of Vietnam should never happen again. You can disagree with the policy and still support and respect the sacrifice and service of those whose duty it was to carry out the policy in part. Amen. So let us have our discussions about those things, but let us never turn our backs on the troops.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Bob, I want to get to another uh, subject here since we, since we know that not every athlete is a Mensa member. Oh, I, I'm shocked to hear that. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> Have you, have you ever asked a very thoughtful, complex question that went right over someone's head?
0: Oh gosh, I'm trying to think what that might be.
1: <laughs> and, and the reason I asked that I had that experience with Leon Spinks? Nothing All Leon. <laughs> nothing against Leon Spinks.
0: Yeah, Michael Michael appeared to be a, a little sharper dude than his, than his brother. Leon. Right, right, yeah. You know, I'm going to think, after I hang up, I'm going to think of ten things. Right, right. But, but I can't think of anything right now that would really that would really um, be a, a good answer to your question. Although I'm sure it's happened many times.
1: <laughs> well, we have a regular uh, segment on this program, Bob, called uh, Got Your Six. It's six rapid-fire questions Okay. for Bob Costas. You ready? Okay. Who is the smartest person you've ever interviewed?
0: Ah, uh, the smartest person I've ever interviewed. George Will is pretty darn smart. Mm, that'll yeah. that'll do. That'll do until I think of something yes. else.
1: You you worked for the legendary KMOX in St. Louis. You called Missouri basketball. Mm-hmm. Have you ever eaten gooey butter cake?
0: Yeah, and I don't like it. Yeah, you I, know I I, I like it. desserts, but if they're if they're really super sweet, like I'm not, even as a kid, I didn't want a Twinkie. You know, it's just too damn sweet.
1: <laughs> you graduated from Syracuse University. What is the name of their mascot? Otto the Orange. Yes! You're, you're, you're like the first person who has answered a question like that correctly. <laughs> and, this is, and this is a, a, a bad one, but what, what is the toughest interview that you can think of that you've done?
0: Well, people think the ones that are contentious.
1: Well, like the, the Howard one with- Stern one certainly uh, comes to mind.
0: No, I didn't. I never interviewed Howard Stern. No, Tom no. Snyder. Tom Snyder interviewed him filling in for me. I think it was at the oh. Olympics or something, and Tom Snyder filled in for me on later, and that really was contentious, but uh, not not that one. You know, people think the Sandusky interview mm. um, like 10 years ago. It's almost exactly 10 years ago now. Or they think of the one with Vince McMahon, which is almost exactly 20 years ago. now. Oh. Been, once a decade, I have, <laughs> I have one like that. But really, the ones that are the most difficult are the ones in which the subject is not forthcoming. Yes. Uh, where, where they enter, their answers are uninteresting or monosyllabic. Um, and one example of that and maybe lost on some of your audience because it goes way back, uh, the actor Jack Palance. Oh, sure. Um, who had been <laughs> in a lot of big movies, but he kind of was introduced to a younger audience in the 1990s when he played the trail boss right. uh, in Billy Crystal's movie City Slickers. And he came on later and didn't realize that it was a long-form interview. He thought it was like five minutes. And it was 22 minutes is how long a 30-minute TV show is, absent hello, goodbye, and the commercials. Um, And those (laughs) 22 minutes usually would fly by. Uh, Man, it was like 22 minutes in the chair.
1: I bigger than you.
0: That's pretty much it. And in fact, at one point, I said to him, you know, we got like five minutes in, and this is—oh my gosh, this is a disaster. And I, I said to him, you know, Jack, I'm beginning to feel like Billy Crystal's character in City Slickers. You crap bigger than me, don't you? And he goes, "This is the exact answer." Oh, Bob, I would crap on you. Perhaps I'd crap on some of your questions, but not on you.
1: Oh my oh, gosh! That's a oh my
0: gosh! Oh yeah, it was awful. All
1: right, Bob, you're known as Rapping Roberto in New York. Yeah. Can you rap?
0: Well, I don't know if I can rap, but I have been name-checked in many hip-hop songs, at least a half dozen that I'm aware of. Really? Costas, much, Costas must rhyme with something or other. You know, it's like, it's like the guys whose names show up in crossword puzzles just because the two S's maybe among six letters helps them get across or down or or whatever it is. So the best-known one um, is from Ludacris some 20-plus years ago, uh, and the lyric uh, that I mentioned in says, i be rolling torpedoes Get blunted with Rostus and for a hefty fee, I'm on your record, like Bob Costas. <laughs> I don't think he says it quite that way, that's but great. That, that's me rendering <laughs>
1: ludicrous. <laughs> and a final question for Bob Costas. What is the best cure for pink eye?
0: Time. <laughs> <laughs> You know when it when it happened, and allow me to assure your audience that they're losing sleep over this. None of the causes of this that have been suggested on gossip sheets or in the internet, none, or
1: or by my producer,
0: right, have a scintilla of truth, not a thimble's worth of truth. Okay, it, it was not generic pink eye. It was. Viral conjunctivitis, the whole deal, you know, could have been from anything. Could have been from a contact lens or on the flight somebody sneezes on the way from New York uh, to Moscow or wherever the hell I flew into, Sochi. Who knows what the hell it is? Okay, but in any case, when the doctors at the International Broadcast Center examine me, at first they think it's a bacterial thing, and they give me some antibiotics, and they say it'll be gone in three days. Then when it jumps from the left eye to the right, boop, oh, nope, not pink eye. It's viral conjunctivitis. We withdraw the original diagnosis. This will be gone in two to three weeks. And I say, that is the exact length of the Olympic Games. <laughs> so, so yes, it came on the day before the opening ceremony. Wow. And by the time I got off the plane back in New York, it was 90% gone. And a week later, it was 100% gone.
1: Oh my gosh, you are so fantastic, Bob! Thank you so much for the time. It's it's such a it's such an honor to have you on the program. I've been a huge fan for many many years, and you just do a tremendous job. Best of luck with the uh, the new HBO show. It's uh, again it's, it's a form of television that is not even out there anywhere. So thank you for that.
0: Thank you very much, Randy. I really enjoyed it. Happy holidays.
1: You've been listening to Celebrity Salute. Celebrity Salute is produced by Brainstorm Media and distributed by National Defense Network with host Randy Miller and executive produced by Nate Heron. Be sure to visit us at nationaldefensenetwork.com. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also say, Alexa, play the National Defense Network podcast.